Once upon a younger year, when all our shadows disappeared, the animals inside came out to play. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Stepp, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 130 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined by Jeremy Paxton, co-founder of the podcast. And Jeremy, we have a fun episode on Duck today, and it's it's one that we haven't really explored. I mean, we talk about how we're, you know, sports, politics, pop culture, and we're going to talk about sports and politics here in just a moment. But uh, we have Ben Jackson, who is a magician here in Houston, and you're going to want to hear this interview. I mean, it, it, it's phenomenal. I mean, he's such an engaging artist and very, very talented with sleight of hand, uh, mentalism, mind manipulation. Uh, you know, I, I think our audience is going to be blown away by this. Absolutely. I mean, he's not just a talented magician, but just a talented speaker in general. I mean, just very, very well spoken. And I, I will say this much. I mean, certainly a reader of people. And of course, in my profession, I, I like to think that I am. But he is just a consummate professional. Really fun interview. I wish we, you know, one of the things I said on the interviews, I wish we had a camera in studio where you could see some of the things that he was doing for us, but um, really fantastic material that, that he brought to the podcast. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, so stay tuned for that interview. Uh, you can check out Ben's work at benjacksonmagic.com. Also, we're going to be giving away two tickets to his show uh, at the end of May during Memorial Day weekend, that Friday night. So uh, pay attention to our social media channels at Weekly Brewcast for more information uh, as that show approaches. But uh, Jeremy, uh, it's been quite the interesting week from a, you know, a historical perspective. Uh, Barbara Bush, First Lady, passes away. She was very um, important to the city of Houston, uh, state of Texas, uh, the patriarch of the Bush family. Uh, matriarch, sorry, matriarch of the Bush family. Uh, she passed away at the age of 92, uh, had her funeral service Saturday in Houston. Uh, Bill Clinton was here. Hillary Clinton was here. Barack Obama was here. Uh, Michelle Obama was here. Of course, George and Laura Bush and uh, Melania Trump were here. Uh, you might have been right the first time calling her the patriarch of the Bush family. Uh, <laughs> all right, fair. But anyways, yeah, <clears throat> really tragic. I mean, you know, she she had, she had lived a long uh, good life, but it is always sad to see, um, you know, a member of any of America's first families pass away. Um, certainly, certainly a loss for the city, but, you know, I, I think, you know, when you go back and look at the legacy, um, that she brought to the white house, you know, she's, she was called, you know, America's second mother, you know, and she, she certainly had that quality to her. And I think what one thing that I took from, from all of the interviews done with people who knew her was that she was always sharp, always on point, um, always had something to say about something you might have been doing wrong. So she was really big about manners. She was certainly that sort of old New England that I think is kind of hard to find these days, you know, very, very prim and proper, but yet still very loving, you know, and I think that that's one of the things that her children uh, may note of is that, you know, while she's a very firm mom, for mother while they were growing up um, and having a profound impact in shaping, you know, two future presidents. Yeah. Um, she was still very loving and followed up all of her firmness with a, with a loving touch. And so it's certainly a, certainly a loss for the Bush family and, you know, um, America as a whole. Yeah. There's a really good article written in the Atlantic by Tim Deftali. And if that name sounds familiar, he's a clinical associate professor of history at NYU. Uh, he is also a presidential historian, uh, wrote a book on the Bush family and spent a lot of time with her. And one of the things that I found interesting about the the article is he spoke about how, you know, we think of people that, you know, especially the older guard that do not change their minds on anything, right? 
you know, it, it, but he said that Barbara Bush often changed with the times, right? Like she would, she would talk to people and, and, and those people would influence her thoughts on society, on, on politics. And so she was a very, very fascinating woman. Um, uh, you know, a, a great representation of what America should be, in, in my opinion. Um, and it is kind of interesting. You know, she didn't always support the Republican Party. Uh, Mayor, what, Anise Parker... Mm-hmm. who Democrat uh, here in Houston, the first openly uh, gay mayor for a major U.S. city, I think population over 100,000. Uh, she endorsed her uh, during her first campaign as mayor. Uh, there's speculation that she voted for Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election, as well as other well, members of the Bush family. I was going to say, there's speculation the whole Bush family voted for Hillary Clinton. But w- without a doubt, um, she, she was very a little bit more complex than, than one, might, one might first assume. Um, I think what, what, when I think about the influence she's had, I mean, she really had a profound impact on, you know, of course, her husband uh, becoming president, but then also George W. Bush, you know, who was a two-term Bush, and then also on Jeb Bush, who decided to run unsuccessfully here in the 2016 primary, uh, she was kind of sort of famously quoted as saying, you know, I think we've, something along the lines of, we've had enough Bushes in the White House. And, of course, she walked back those comments sometime later when he officially announced. But uh, without a doubt, very, very, a very influential, a very influential person um, beyond her tenure as First Lady. Yeah, Barbara Pierce Bush, dead at the age of 92. Her legacy will live on uh, Beyond our generation, uh, a very influential woman, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers of the Bush family. And, and another interesting story this week, uh, Avicii, who is a DJ. We played, you know, one of his songs in the opening. <laughs> yeah, to, 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 totally different. Avicii totally is, different. I had to look the guy up, I'll be honest you, with you. Know who he, but you've heard his music before. I'm saying, right, I've heard his music, and I don't know who he is. So, uh, World famous DJ, dead at 28 in Muscat, Oman. Uh, kind of a sad situation. Uh, you know, you probably know this, but I like EDM or electronic dance music. And he was sort of one of the most mainstream artists in, in, in that sense. Um, but but I, I guess he had depression issues. He didn't like performing live. It kind of reminds me of like Mitch Hedberg, the, uh, the famous comedian that passed away several years ago, uh, had stage fright issues. So it's it's... Very, very sad story. Vern Troyer, Mini-Me. I was just about to say, well, like, how, so. how can we forget Mini-Me? Um, yeah. Really, I mean, I don't know if, if you grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Austin Powers. Yeah, you knew Austin Powers. You knew Vern Troyer as, as uh, Mike Myers' uh, mini-double, you know, Mini-Me. So um, really sad story. It sounded like he you know, he had had some problems with addiction, I think, later in life and alcoholism in particular. But all around, all around sad stuff. But um, on the brighter side... Of things, there were a lot of good things that uh, that happened this week. Of course, the Astros have now won six in a row, which is fantastic. We came off a three-game losing streak uh, to come back and not and just like sweep the White Sox with a vengeance. Which you know, if you're still bitter about two thousand the two thousand five World Series, you're 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 feeling pretty good <laughs> about that. So, e- even still, so it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> On, uh, during Friday night's game, Jeff Blum, who uh, is the color analyst for the Astros, he played for the Astros for a while. Uh, but he also played for the White Sox in 2005 uh, during the World Series, and he hit a home run against the Astros, which essentially sealed the World Series. I think it was in Game 3 or something like that. But 
uh, he had both of his World Series rings on from, uh, you know, 2005. And then the most recent World Series, the Astros organization uh, gave him a ring. Uh, and, you know, some fans were giving him a little bit of a hard time. But, yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, last week when we recorded the podcast, the Astros were on a one in five stretch, not playing great baseball. Their pitching staff looked phenomenal. It was their offense that was sluggish. And I, I cautioned our listeners not to overreact. You know, the offense would eventually come around. First game in Seattle didn't go well, right? And then they win the next three games in Seattle. Offense starts to come alive. And then they score, what, 27 runs? More than 27 runs in three days against the Chicago White Sox. Oh, it's insane. Offense looks like they're back. And, uh, well, and let's let's not, I mean, the White, the White Sox are not a fantastic team this no, year. that's 100% so, true. Yeah, Astros mean, led the league going into the series and starter ERA. White Sox were the worst. Yeah, they look they look like a warm-up squad that's playing the varsity or something like it's that. It's what we call a quadruple-A team. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I, I was really, I was really, uh, Charlie Morton's pitching has been really, yeah, so really Charlie impressive. Morton. He's a guy that has had some health issues, injury issues in the past. Uh, since he came and started working with Strom, the pitching coach for the Astros, he just completely developed a new approach to the game. Also, his velocity on his fastball is going up to 97, 98, 99 miles an hour. It's insane. He used to be a guy that said around 92, 93. Uh, and he actually leads the American League in starter ERA. It's insane. You know, he ranks number two in the American League. Garrett Cole, also an Astro. So that's your number four and number five guys in the rotation at one and two in the American League and earn run average. Justin Verlander, who is having a phenomenal season, is not even third. He's third on his team in starter ERA, and he ranks third in Major League Baseball as well. I mean, the Astros starting pitching staff has a chance to be historically good if they can stay healthy. Right, and I think that'll be something that the bullpen and how they move things around will be really vital to watch as we head into in late May. We've got a series with the Red Sox. I'm really looking forward to um, Red Sox are currently ser- ser- sitting 17 and three with the best record in the league. It looks like. And so, um, yeah, that, that series against the Red Sox um, that comes up not anytime soon. So right. keep that in mind. Um, right. But the immediate schedule uh, Astros take on the Angels this week at Minute Maid Park. Shohei Otani, who is a phenomenal pitcher, phenomenal Japanese prospect from uh, the Angels, a two-way player. He can pitch. He can hit. He can do it all. Uh, he's allegedly going to start on Tuesday night, which is dollar hot dog night. So make sure you get your tickets for that. Uh, also, the Athletics come into town uh, this weekend for a uh, three-game series. And then next weekend, the Astros host – I'm sorry, next Monday through Wednesday – Monday through Thursday, the Astros host the Yankees. So that 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 series should be a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of great baseball coming here in Houston. But one more note, Brian McTaggart from the uh, uh, MLB.com uh, put this tweet out on Sunday afternoon. It said, in three games against Chicago, the Astros had 36 hits and drew 18 walks. They were 13 for 31, or which is a 419 with runners in scoring position. So when runners got on base, they scored. So if you're an Astros fan... It's really good news. Back, it, really it, good it, news. It, it's back to old. Yeah, right. really good news. White Sox, though, unfortunately, worst, worst, worst start since 1968. Yeah, so, speaking of bad starts, yeah. um, we were at on the curb on uh, Saturday night, and we were watching the uh, the Rockets game against the T-Wolves. Rockets didn't look good. They didn't. They, they, they halfway showed up. Uh, the, the first half, I thought, yeah, there's a chance, right? We were down a point heading into the locker room, but came out and just let Sluggish. them... Sluggish. Yeah, just just let them run up and down the court. We played... We, we, we cannot... Defense, well, defensively, it was terrible because, you know, the Rockets allowed the Wolves to shoot 
better than 50% from the three-point line. Yeah, that was insane. That the, was you can't win playoff totally games Totally like unacceptable. And just the, or the rebounding was on and off at times. Um, of course, James Harden, even though he had a good night, I thought yeah, he, he looked 29 points, seven assists. I mean, the problem, I think Harden, Paul, with the exception of the game two where uh, James Harden didn't show up, he was, what, two for 18 from the field. Uh, the supporting guys need to step up. Right. I mean, Eric Gordon has not played well this series. He needs to start finding it from range. Trevor Reza, streaky. Uh, you know, uh, Capella's played well. I think he'd, I'd like to see him a little more offensively. But you need those other guys besides Harden and Paul to step up. And, you know, right now, uh, Houston fans will find anything to get concerned about. Rockets are up 2-1. to one. I, I still think they win the series. I still think they win it in five or six games. But Monday night, 7 o'clock back at the target center in Minneapolis. Like that's, that's a big game because if you give Minnesota confidence, I mean, they, right, right. If, if they take, the, if they, if they take the momentum back, I mean, as a Houston fan and you watch the Rockets, you know, for the last five seasons, you know, when we get, we get into playoff mode, we tend to crumble at some point. And, it, and it's not just James Harden. It's a team wide phenomenon. We just <clears throat> have problems in the playoffs. So I'm really hoping that we can undo that curse and, make it past the first round and into the second round and hopefully take it all the way to repeat or to, to, to add on to the Astros World Series title. Yeah, that would be great to have two championships in Houston at the exact same time. Uh, I, I would absolutely love that. But in terms of looking at the overall NBA playoff picture, uh, Thunder and Jazz, which I think is a great series, Utah is up 2-1. to one. Uh, in that series, uh, Boston and uh, the Bucks, Milwaukee Bucks, that series is tied at two games apiece. Golden State lost 103 to 90 on Sunday. Uh, they lead that series three to one. As we are recording right now, the Raptors are up on the Wizards 27 21. Cavs and Pacers uh, with the Cavs down two to one in that series play Sunday night. So uh, a lot of things can change. Uh, Sixers Heat series is good. Uh, you know, Philadelphia, trust the process. They're up three to one. And remember that bet that we have with Jake Kaplan uh, from last week's podcast. So. Uh, NBA basketball is a lot of fun. So much better to watch in the postseason than it is during the regular season, without question. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the rest of the season. Um, obviously, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm texting my girlfriend at the moment. Uh, <laughs> very, very important, um, as Austin has teased me mercilessly about about uh, some some big things that are on the horizon for me. Um, so, anyways, yeah, not not proposing in an Astros game, Austin, with a... Well, wait, uh, what, what big things are you talking about? There's just no big things. Does I mean, she just, listen to this podcast? She doesn't. She doesn't. So, I, I can talk openly about that. But, yeah, it's, it's coming up sometime soon. So. Okay. All right. So, stay tuned for that. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but, uh, Jeremy, we're going to debut a new segment this week. And it's going to be talking baseball. That's this is with this J-Pax. is this is fake news. This is not happening. Oh come on! Uh, this is let's, not happening. Let's give it a shot. Fake news. You know what? If the listeners want it, the listeners can ask for it. But that's not happening. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So we will go ahead and skip that segment. We'll work on Jeremy getting that right. and at a at a future episode or whatnot. But we have a fantastic interview coming up Absolutely. with Ben Jackson, magician, a scholar, a gentleman. I argue. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, so if you want to find out more about Ben Jackson, one, stay tuned for the interview. I think it's going to be a great uh, segment with him. Also, uh, check out his website, benjacksonmagic.com. He's got more information on his shows. uh, And then uh, you can buy tickets to his show. We're going to be giving away two tickets to his show. I believe it's May 25th, which is a Friday night. Uh, So be sure to follow the Weekly Brew on social media, Weekly Brewcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can figure out how you can win those tickets. But uh, Jeremy... 
uh, we've got a great interview in store. So without further ado, I think we should get to it. So it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. On Friday night, Jeremy and I were watching Astros playoff basketball, that sort of thing. And uh, we were talking about a a guest that we're going to have on the show this week, and that's Ben Jackson, great illusionist magician here in Houston. And Jeremy was, I don't know, wanting to become a little more familiar with him. So we went on to Ben's website and saw some videos that he had posted for an ad campaign for the Houston Museum of Natural Science. And, you know, both Jeremy and I, I think we've, what, got long-term relationships, you know, two, three plus years. And so it, it's time to, you know, start thinking about next steps, right? Right, Jeremy? I, I would think so yeah, at this point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what, what am I doing otherwise? Yeah. And so <laughs> there was this video in which Ben was doing like, what is it, three-card Monty type? type magic but and he was turning what marbles into diamonds very close yeah Yeah. and so we knew that we had to get him in studio on sunday to maybe provide us a discount i I don't know you know i've been ring shopping and man it is i it's it's pretty steep yeah man price of diamonds these days you know I, i like to think of purchases in terms of like how many lattes at starbucks could i buy with that money that's right it's a lot of lattes uh that i'm about to spend so maybe you could help me out Robbins Brothers, eat your heart out, man. I could tell you, we could make that happen for you. Make it just <laughs> diamonds pop, no problem. Okay. <laughs> All right, so of course we've got uh, Ben Jackson in studio today. And Ben is uh, a Houstonian, grew up in uh, North Houston. And I had the opportunity to see him perform, what, two months ago, hmm. I think, uh, in the Montrose area. I was just blown away. Like, well, thanks, man. I mean, just the the humor, the comedy... Uh, the tricks, just the constant entertainment for an hour and a half. It, it felt like it was 20 minutes. It didn't feel like it was an hour and a half. Uh, so we definitely wanted to bring you by to talk about, uh, you know, kind of what you do from, uh, you know, an entertainer standpoint and talk about some of your upcoming shows and uh, kind of your background. So I guess before we dive into that, can you give our listeners just a quick overview of who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Ben Jackson. I'm 31 years old. I'm a native Houstonian. I live uh, in kind of Oak Forest area with my wife, Julie, and I make my living as a magician. I know that raises a lot of furrowed brows when I say that. People say, oh, what instrument do you play? I say, no, 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 no. Magician, magic. That's, that's my gig. That's my full-time career. And oftentimes that's followed up with, oh, come on, what do you really do? What do you really do? I was like, no, no, no. So I make my living perform predominantly for corporate events, private receptions, and, of course, the reoccurring one-man show that I do at uh, La Calamdor Hotel here in town. But that's that's the, the cliff notes. Yeah, so uh, it, just I, I guess my question from that is how like what piqued your interest in magic? How did you how did you get into this? Absolutely. My uh, my dad's good buddy a guy named Blaine Sampson is a magic enthusiast. I was about eight years old. And we were visiting them in the booming metropolis of Lawrence, Kansas. And we, <laughs> go Jayhawks. Yeah, go Jayhawks. And, <laughs> and so it was after Thanksgiving Day dinner. We had all gathered around the dining room table, and Blaine wanted to show us something special. And so he uh, busted out a deck of cards and performed one trick that absolutely floored everyone in the room. I mean, I felt as though he took my brain out of my skull, put it in a blender, and hit frappe. That's how I felt. <laughs> it was an awesome feeling. And it wasn't just a trick that fooled the kids. It was... The, my parents had no idea and how it was done. 
And I remember asking him that night, hey, like, how in the world did you do that trick? And he didn't tell me. And that was more than likely the bug that bit that got me into magic. And because it was still mysterious, the answer wasn't readily apparent. Uh, that's probably what spurred on my curiosity and thirst for knowledge to pursue a rather ancient art form. So I feel like every kid, and I don't, uh, Jeremy, I'm, I don't know if, if this is the case for you, but when I was little, I was fascinated by card tricks, you know, magic illusions. I actually performed at my sister's eighth birthday party uh, doing some <laughs> card tricks. That was my... Love to see your set, man. <laughs> I know. It's, I'm, it's, I'm texting your dad right now. Yeah. I'm looking for the video. <laughs> but, you know... My grandfather was the one that introduced me to some of these these tricks. Uh, he was he grew up in West Texas. Uh, they lived in West Texas, and I remember going up to Abilene as a kid, and he would show me different card tricks, and he would teach me how to do it, and I would take it back, show my fourth and fifth grade class, you know, mm. acting, you know, oh great, I fooled everybody, this is great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember going to like you know magic stores, picking up you know trick coins, that sort of thing, oh, cards yeah. that rise, you know, just yeah. I remember going to Orlando Disney World and stopping by the magic store there and getting as much stuff as I could. Uh, and you know, magic is something that you know, if we're playing cards with people, there's one trick that I always go to, and mm-hmm. it's it's one that I enjoy, and it always gets a few like oohs and ahs. But I didn't really, you know, it was always like a a fun thing for me. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that I wanted to pursue. Unfortunately, uh, I, th- I think kids that grow up enjoying magic, a lot of times they lose interest after uh, a few years, you know, whether it's not putting in the time to learn, you know, the next level, maybe it's, they don't see a way that they can get to Las Vegas, that sort of thing. What was it that drove you to, you know, from when you were eight years old? Yeah from just seeing that trick to say, hey, I want to learn this. I want to make this my living, and I'm going to be good at it. Man, well, it's probably a combination of factors. I'd always been somewhat of a ham, you know, in school, and I remember uh, the first time I had listened to a Jerry Seinfeld album or a Bill Cosby album or Robert Klein or the Smothers Brothers, so I'd always been a big fan of comedy. I remember that was always kind of a... I don't know, uh, just something that all my family could get behind. We could always remember like making road trips and listening to, I'm telling you for the last time by Jerry Seinfeld and seeing like my dad laugh or my mom laugh just hysterically. Uh, it really drove me to comedy as far as wanting to weave that into the performance that I do. And then when I was 13 years old, I went to Magic Island, which, you know, staple here in town in Houston, which is no longer in operation, but you live very close to it. It's the old uh, Egyptian-themed building right off Southwest 59. I've driven by it several times. That's right. And now it's a dilapidated, closed uh, landmark, I guess. But as a patron, if you attended Magic Island, you would see uh, magic perform in different settings. You'd see magic in a close-up setting, in a parlor setting, in a stage setting. And when I was 13 years old, my mom and dad had arranged for me to meet with the entertainment director, a guy named Scott Hollinsworth. And we had some time to share before one of the main shows. And I had seen Scott perform. And not only was he funny, but he was also amazing. And I realized that when he was performing magic, there weren't any big boxes, any tight leather pants and rainbow streamers, rabbits from hats, no livestock. (laughs) The guy was doing the most amazing things with the most humble of objects. And I thought, wow, the barriers to entry are low. Not only could you be super funny, you could also do amazing things that would, you know, fry people's brains. I want to do that. And uh, I remember meeting him and showing him something I had worked on. And, you know, like you were saying, it was probably some type of gimmick thing, a, a trick coin or a funny deck of cards, something like that. 
And he kind of set me straight. He said, Ben, that's not any good. And I'm like, what do you mean, not any good? It's my birthday, man. (laughs) Uh, But he just said, look, if you really want to take the craft seriously and really show me a different side of magic to say this is an art form, this is a studied thing, then I recommend a couple books, Mark Wilson's Complete Course in Magic and The Royal Road to Card Magic. Why don't you start spending some time delving into that material and come talk to me later. And so I did. And so I spent several years a lot of time practicing in front of my mirror at the house and reading through these books, and, and that was kind of the thirst for knowledge that kept me going. Now, is, now, I was just about to ask that question. So, like, becoming a magician, it's not exactly like a major at a university you can take, right? Yeah, it's not, yeah, yeah. You're not going to major in, in magic. Hogwarts, Although that would be that's sports. what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. I'm a fifth year. I play Wizards chess. Right, yeah, it's like awesome. You, so, you on the Quidditch team, or...? I'm not that good. Okay. Didn't make it. <laughs> so every magician is basically self-taught on some on yeah. some level. Mm-hmm. In other words, a lot of alone no, time. Yeah, a lot of alone <laughs> time. <laughs> so, but but that but that's really cool, and you really have to have such a drive to do that. Now, let me, I guess, off that question, do you are are your tricks that you do in your show are most of them interpretations of other tricks that mm-hmm. magicians do, or are mm-hmm. they original in your own? Man, I really can't take credit for originality. I mean, as they say, nothing's new underneath the sun. And I was actually just, I was just at brunch with my wife and we were talking about um, a guy named Isaac Fox. And Isaac Fox was this English magician and uh, he was the first really major conjurer to perform magic in a theater. And as opposed to all the other magicians of his day would do magic um, more as a, a street hustle. They were buskers. They would do it for, um, you know, just uh, just outdoor entertainment. But he was the first guy that said, no, 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 no. Magic is an art form. Magic belongs in the theater. Magic should be for the refined, for the sophisticated. Come in, sit down in a cool space, and enjoy magic as the focal point of entertainment, not some side hustle. And I was reading about him, and he uh, does it. He was. It was documented that he did a trick known as the egg bag, and people do the egg bag today. And that was around since 1722. So I don't perform the egg bag myself, but the fact is that magic. Uh, the effects of magic are pretty timeless. And some would say there's only seven types of effects that you can actually perform. So, you know, uh, one of the most popular effects you can do is an object travels to an impossible location. And people will have that effect done a number of different ways. I do that effect twice in the show that I do at La Column d'Or Hotel. But you see David Blaine do it when he's doing magic for Harrison Ford in his in his house, right. and like his sign Bill ends up inside of a apple or something or whatever. Or, or you see guys like what you just said you saw Penn and Teller, like when Penn and Teller borrows someone's cell phone and ends up inside that fish inside the box. That's the object to impossible location plot. So as for me, you know I can't really claim originality for the classic effects of magic, but it is fun to dress them up for an audience of 2018 and keep them fun and relative. And so that's always a, it's always a challenge. So how do you stay fresh? You know, because like you said, you're dressing it up for an audience in 2018. People have grown up, you know, whether it's seeing Penn and Teller, whether it's seeing David Blaine, Chris Angel, like, Mm -hmm. you know, they've seen all these magicians, you know, maybe not in person, but they've seen them on America's Got Talent. They've seen them on different TV shows at one point or yeah. another. Like, 
what do you do to stay fresh, keep current, and keep your audience wanting to come back to shows? Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like so much of the magic that you know people do see they really it's really filtered into one of two places it's either on i'm watching magic on youtube or i'm watching magic on america's got talent on television or i'm seeing it in a large las vegas showroom but it's it's surprising the number of people that when i perform for them in the real world up close and personal and it's an intimate group they'll say i have never seen magic like that before I've never seen it inches away from my face, right underneath my nose. And the effects that I perform really are you know, like there's, they're iterations of iterations of, of material that are kind of classic plots of magic that even though they're maybe old as the hills, they still hit hard and harder than ever. And nowadays when something flies in the face of experience in 2018, it makes magic that much more... Uh, precious and rare to have a moment of mysteriousness and awe and wonder. And so, although I, I do like to keep my magic topical, I like to use things that are humble by means and relatable. You know, I think when people, <laughs> when they see magicians on stage with a giant box, and, you know, I don't think that they're thinking, wow, that guy's amazing. I think they're thinking, that box is amazing, you know, whatever it does, whatever the box does. So one of the strict parameters that I use in my show is that every prop that I handle, everything that we use, is I could go to Walmart and get, get that thing. I could go and get, get a deck of cards. I could find some silver dollars. I could find a magazine. I could borrow your cell phone. And because it's, you know, it's not dressed up with dragons on the side or big paint or whatever, or, you know, smoke machines and... Uh, all this stuff, it's so much more relatable and that, and therefore more impactful. I'll tell you what, though. When when I went to see your show back in February or March, um, I was offended by one of your performances. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of, one of, your, <laughs> one of your tricks. Um, it was because you had Dr. Pepper and you um, you made it disappear. And that's, I think that's really offensive in I think Texas. It, well, you know what? Rightfully so. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Dr. Pepper fan, let's, let's wait, take wait, that hold straight. On. You went to Baylor. I we did. Used to parties at the Dr. Pepper Museum, and oh you're not you're not a you're not a Dr. Pepper fan. My I am a Dr. Pepper fan, but my pancreas is not. So <laughs> that's fair. I, I can't. That's I, fair. No, it it, it sends Can me cease and desist letters. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm not that good. I'm not that good <laughs> so uh, you know, we we talk about you know kind of seeing things up close and personal mm-hmm. rather than seeing them on TV. And I was actually having a conversation with somebody uh, the other day. This person was telling me that they wanted to see Taylor Swift. Here in Houston, okay, and she's performing at Energy Stadium, massive venue, eighty-five thousand people will be there. I'm not a huge fan of those like big arena shows, right? Because it's so many people. I would rather see a musician at a smaller venue, mm-hmm. right, where it's a thousand people. The acoustics are a little bit better. You feel like you're part of the show rather than sure using I don't know like binoculars to try to even see the stage, right? And your shows are like that. Mm-hmm. Right, you're you're not going in front of you know four or five thousand people in Vegas. It's forty, fifty people right. at, at your shows, and I feel like one of the things that separates you from other acts that I've seen in the past is the way that you involve the audience. You make them feel a part of the show, mm-hmm. and you still have that comedic value as well. Yeah, we make that point known at the very beginning of the show. I say, uh, you know, you guys could have been anywhere tonight: Wortham Center, Jones Hall, Alley Theater but you're in the attic of a hotel, and I appreciate that. And I will tell you that as opposed to a piece of traditional theater, we will break the fourth wall tonight. And I'm not just an actor up here reciting lines. 
without you, there is no magic. I mean, as much as I like to practice, it's hard for me to maintain that level of enthusiasm when I'm staring in front of my mirror at my house and saying, wow, how did that happen? You know, I can't fool myself. So, and that is one of the things that separates magic from all the other art forms. You know, a musician can sit down at the, pin, at the, at the bench and work on his, uh, his, his, his scales, whatever, if he's playing the piano, and they can appreciate the sound of their own music. A painter, you can, you can look and you can see the brush strokes and the choice of paints, and, or a singer, you can hear if they're on pitch or off pitch. It's all very visible. Uh, but with magic, it is so much hidden skill and that the desired effect really only happens in the minds of the spectator. And so uh, yeah, that's, those are the big distinguishing factors that I think draw people to magic because it's so different. I was going to say, kind of on that subject, when you watch magic shows, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm assuming that you watch other professionals oh, sure, do it, sure. and is, is their act ruined for you because you know what's going on or are you ever dumbfounded as a professional? Like, how do they do that? Yeah, well, I will tell you that uh, it's never ruined. If anything, my appreciation for seeing when someone else do the craft uh, is only, it only grows. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was in the UK, and I had just finished competing at FISM, which is the World Championships of Magic. It's like the Olympics of Magic. It's held once every three years. Is there an opening ceremony? Is that, I don't know. Yeah. Actually, no, there was. Why there was. This, <laughs> and why is this not on ESPN? I don't want to watch the Spelling Bee. I know. Bee. I, I think they, really watch that. they yeah. talked about maybe uh, covering them because it's phenomenal. I mean, every country sends in like their national champions and they compete. I mean, Wizards duels are real. They're real. <laughs> and it's an international judging panel and everyone does their act and they're graded on originality, technique, showmanship. But anyway, so, uh, but, but back to the story. After... Uh, I had uh, competed, I went to London and I watched this really world-renowned uh, mentalist, a guy named Darren Brown, perform. And I'm sitting in my row and I look to my right and my left and there are about six or eight other guys who were also at the convention conference uh, who have also had the same idea that I did to come see Darren Brown perform. And we're watching him and we're getting giddy in our seats and, you know, kind of ribbing each other and getting so excited because what we see on stage, like he's already done the magic. The, the move has already happened. The audience has no idea what's coming. But we're getting jazzed out of our minds because we're like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. That was such a clever use of that principle. Or that was such a great subtlety. Or man, he really casted his line out there and that hook is set in so deep right now. It's crazy. And so because we know what to look for and we... We can appreciate the ruses and subterfuges and subtleties and little you know, psycholo- psychological bits of showmanship. That's what we can recognize that the audience doesn't recognize. And because we know, you know, we know what's involved, our appreciation grows. It's like if I were a big car guy and I went outside and someone popped their hood and said, check this out. If I knew what I was looking for, I'd probably get, you know, Wow, that's so awesome. I know nothing about cars, so I can't appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, if you were to pop up in my hood, I would say, oh, it's clean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's the battery again? So, <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, watching other performers perform, um, you always learn something. I think I, I will always learn something from watching another person perform. And, uh, and I think, actually, that was my feeling with my, with my wife. You know, I met my wife the night before my last final exam in my college career. I was in my apartment. My roommate, Mark Burgess, was like, hey, buddy. 
you want to come to my church and hang out and we'll drink some coffee and study for your big final tomorrow? And I thought, oh, man, I don't want to go. I'm not going to get anything done, but I guess I'll go. So I went and I met several of Mark's friends and subsequently met my wife. And I know that she was off in some other room and one of her friends came to get her and said, oh, hey, hey, Julie, come on out here. There's a magician. And she was like, no, no, thanks. (laughs) No, thank you. Okay, well, I guess I'll go. And so I performed some magic for everybody, and she was there. And I know that as we, you know, as we grew in our relationship, and as I kind of took her behind the curtain to say, you know, look, this, this is how magic works, her appreciation didn't diminish. Her appreciation grew, especially for the type of magic that I performed, sleight of hand, theatrical mind reading, all that stuff, to say, wow, there is so much beneath the surface that I had no idea was was uh, was utilized and how much practice it takes to pull it off. And she's so. pretty active in your shows and you know setting everything up, making sure everything runs smoothly, correct? Yes. The show at La Column d'Or Hotel is is literally a two-man operation. It's just it's it's a mom and pop organization. It's me and my wife. And uh so if you guys come to the show, it's you'll uh, you'll know that she's there to check you in on the second floor. She's there to uh show you to your seats. And as far as the magic is concerned, I'm, I'm just the only guy on stage. And I think she wants it that way. <laughs> She's not one to, uh, to, to get up in front of a crowd. Uh, so Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about the shows here in just a second. But if you mm-hmm. want to kind of learn more, BenJacksonMagic.com. He's got two shows coming up on Friday, this Friday, April 27th. Uh, four shows in May, May 25th and May 26th. So that's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, highly recommend that you check them out. It's in Montrose. You can probably grab some food before, after, or whatever. But uh, great date night if you're looking for ideas, Jeremy. Uh, you know, if you're looking, I know what you're insinuating. It's not <laughs> happening. I don't know. Maybe he can provide the diamonds. Yeah. If if he can do that, I'm I'm, I'm down. I'll make it happy for him, Jeremy. <laughs> so 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 Ben, uh, you know. You have these shows, but you say that a large part of what you do is also going to corporate events. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I look at your website, you've you performed, I guess, for people at BP, where I work, mm-hmm. um, people at Shell. What do these corporate experiences look like? How, how are you able to leverage that into team building motivation or whatever that sure. specific subject is? Sure. Well, my good friend and business mentor, David Hira out of Dallas, has always told me, Ben, no one needs a magician. And I go, what? no, what do you mean? No one needs a magician. If that's the truth, then I'm out of work. What do you mean? He's like, well, what people do need is they need to have their employees feel a sense of connection. They need to have some great extension of the hospitality during a cocktail hour. They need to feel those in- attendees engaged. Sometimes people need... Uh, um, traffic generated to their booth on the trade show floor. They need to get their product and message heard from the max amount of people who are at this conference. People need some type of uplifting, motivating message to weave in their products and services to their potential clients. And and so, and all those needs can be met. I just do that with magic. So oftentimes, um, yeah, I'm there to help spice up a sales meeting or a client appreciation event, or I help generate traffic on the trade show floor to a company's booth, and I'll weave in my magic as a visual metaphor, as a communication vehicle to talk about their products and services. Um, so, yeah, and, and recently I've been doing a lot of keynote speaking. So as a fun way to drive home like a motivational message that would be applicable to people in the workforce and using my background as a magician to share people the key insights and observations I've gleaned of 
of having a career pursuing my passion and how that may benefit to them uh, and their job. So, so you went to Texas A and M, correct? Texas A and M, that's right. Yeah. So, so Aggies, Aggies, and two Bears. That's what that's what we've got here right now. Two Baylor Bears, uh, <laughs> former rivals. Not really anymore since the Big Twelve SEC I know. being split. But you know, when you were in school, at what point did you know that you wanted to make this a career? Never, never, never had that feeling. How did you leverage what you learned in school to make that a career? Never. never? Well, n- nothing was really applicable. My my major was biomedical science. Oh wow. And I had a I chemistry minor. I would have transferred. Right. <laughs> so you, you, were, you were on the pre-med or pre-research yeah. track. No, everyone right? in my major was really going in one of three directions. It's either medical school, vet school, or dental school. Pick your, pick your track, Jackson. That's it. And I just, I wasn't sure right after school that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I had done an internship the summer before I graduated doing pharmaceutical sales. And I thought, well, hey, man, if there's... If there's anything that's a good job for me, good fit for me is, yeah, maybe it's pharmaceutical sales because I know the science, I know the background. I feel like I'm a pretty gregarious, outgoing guy. I could talk to the doctors, and uh, yeah, I could pursue my magic in the evening. So you know, pharma rep by day, magi by night, it'd be great. Um, but when I graduated in December 2009, job market was bad. It's bad, yeah. And no one's given out jobs, and. And I had not taken my MCAT or any preparatory, uh, sorry, entrance exams into a professional school. So I'm kind of like, well, what do I do right now? And I will tell you something so interesting happened. January 2010, I'm at my parents' house, and I'm playing the piano. My mom walks in with the mail. She says, hey, get a load of this. She throws me a flyer, and it's from the Houston Museum of Natural Science. And they're putting on an exhibit called Magic the science of wonder. And it was going to be a special exhibit talking about why our brain is fooled, why are optical illusions effective. And one of the goals was not only just to have some pieces of magic memorabilia from the past, they also wanted to incorporate live performers demonstrating some of these principles in the exhibit. And so I was able to hop on that train and perform magic during the day from like a traditional job, like, you know, nine to five uh, for about nine months. And that was certainly, uh, man, that was God's grace and provision in my life that he gave me an opportunity to start doing magic right after school. And I was able to then navigate that and build some networks, build some, build some momentum, hand out my cards during the day and grow my business and, and recognition. And, and that's kind of started the, uh, the path. Now, were your friends and family supportive of that? Or were, were, were your friends and family supportive of that? Were they... You, you know, no one ever said no. Um, <laughs> you know, my dad would jokingly say, Ben, let's, uh, let's think about this. <laughs> come on, come on. You know, you, you did well in school, and it looks like you're going down either one of two paths. Either you're going to be able to save someone's life or you're just going to find the three of clubs, okay? What are you going to do? <laughs> Make up your mind. And, uh, you know, I just, again, even while I was kind of navigating the waters, and I, hey, even after I graduated, I went on a couple of job opportunities. One was at, like, St. Luke's was to be a researcher working on rats, and the night before they said yes or no, they called me, and they said we had a reorganization at our, at our uh, company, or at the hospital, and your job that you applied for no longer exists. 
And then the other job I applied for was some orthopedic sales job, and it was less than a reputable company, and the pay grade wasn't that great. So I thought, man, I'd rather spend that level of time and investment, frankly, back into myself, and let's give this magic thing a go. Uh, because if there's ever a time in your life to try something that's different or risky, it's when you're younger, you know, the risk is low. So if I fail, I'm letting myself down. So was there a point in time in which maybe you didn't fail, but a point in time where you kind of stopped and said, Hey, you know, magic isn't going where I want it to. I need to maybe step back and reevaluate things. Or have you always been, I don't know, successful in it? Like have have there Mm -hmm. been difficult challenges for you and how did you overcome those was it a support network what was it that's a a great question um i know that i've been very fortunate to surround myself with a bunch of older wiser men who have either dabbled with magic passionately for 40 years or also make their living as a magician and so uh, I give a lot of credit to guys like Greg Lancaster and David Hira and my friend Bob Patillo, who's not even a magician per se. He's just a very successful business owner. And knowing that these guys, whenever I had problems or setbacks or difficulties or questions about how do I, how do I make my magic not just a side passion but a viable vocation, that I would go to them and say, hey, you guys have so much more life experience what should I do? And, and they've been very gracious and, uh, and bountiful with their information. So, I mean, I, I, I have been very fortunate to have some success as a magician amongst other magi as far as, like, recognition from my peers. Again, 2010, I won first place at the World Magic Seminar in Las Vegas for a close-up slide of hand magic and subsequently won uh, two other international titles, the Society of American Magicians competition in Las Vegas and the International Brotherhood of Magicians competition in in San Diego, California. And I think from those, I was also able to leverage that to go on the Today Show with David Copperfield. And I got to be a hand double for Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the movie Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. No one saw that movie. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and I got to go on uh, Candid Camera operating as a magician in disguise, working with Peter Funt, whose dad, Alan Funt, yeah, started the yeah. show in 1948. So I've been very fortunate to have some success, but I know that every time I would have questions or doubts or uncertainties or just another ear to listen, I would go probably to my board of directors, my trustees, the guys who I rely on to give me good counsel. And so um, that's, I feel that's really been made the difference in, in making my career viable. Yeah, yeah, that's that's such an incredible incredible story. I mean, of of the of the people you've worked with who are other professionals, like so maybe we could call them celebrities. Okay. And who who would you say is your favorite? Oh my gosh. That is so tough. That is so tough because, you know, if you ask anyone off the street right now to name a magician, they'll probably name one of the big 3. David Copperfield, David Blaine, Chris Angel. That's about the number of magicians I think people can keep in their head, like the current, you know, current population, just three people. Um, they may mention Houdini. And, and frankly, you know, I'm, I'm not as drawn to those folks. Uh, I, I, if I were to ask you, like, who are your favorite sports announcers or sports analysts or reporters, or you would probably name names. I would have I, no idea. No right. idea who that person is, Ooh. but you know them. You respect them. And so Let's clarify that. I would know. Jeremy would not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
my favorite sports reporter, we all know. <laughs> Who is that? Hunter Atkins, obviously. Oh, fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> you can follow him, Hunter Atkins35, on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. If I had to name names, uh, guys like Bill Malone, Chad Long, David Williamson, Eric Mead, Juan Tamariz, Danny Deartiz. Uh, oh, my gosh. I know I'm leaving out some. Doc Eason. Uh, Darren Brown, of course, is phenomenal. You know, are there any are there any specific regions or countries that you think do magic and illusions a little bit better than others? Like sure, like correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, there's a show that Penn and Teller have. It's called Fool Us, and whenever they have Spanish magicians, oh my on, gosh, they are just phenomenal from the, the words story, out of the mouth. yeah, storytelling aspect. Why is it that some yep. countries just do it better than others? Yeah, I'll tell you. Well, number one. Why are Spanish magicians better than the rest of us? <laughs> and when it comes to the realm of card magic, uh, one is because they have at their disposal what we, the current magician population, regard as the maestro of magic, a guy named Juan Tamariz, a guy I just mentioned. Juan is a living legend, um, and he is not only commercially successful in Spain, he's just an international celebrity in the world of magic. And I think what makes Juan's magic so powerful is that he is so relatable, so tangible, so down to earth. In fact, one of the, another famous magician, John Carney, I probably should have mentioned him earlier. John Carney has a very famous quote. He said, people are more sympathetic to gods than they are to humans. Hmm. And because Juan is so relatable, down to earth, he also does not give off the vibe of, I have powers, you don't. I'm the smartest guy in the room, try to bust me. Never has that um, feeling. And I feel like sometimes magicians will go down that road of, you know, it's like, come on. We're, we're, and, I, and I never want to have that feeling in my shows. I want people to walk out and say, ah, Ben is just a really nice guy. We had so much fun. And people would so much rather be fooled by a gentleman than by a jerk, right? So, you know, so I think, so to answer your question, because they have Juan Tamarez as a great counselor and as a great leader, uh, he also has a high bar. Um, so when magicians will congregate and they'll have lectures and workshops, and if he's leading those workshops, the bar is set high. The expectations of your technical skills and your abilities is raised high. They take a lot of time in thinking about the methods of magic, their presentations of magic. Oftentimes, if you go to a magic meeting these days, you know, maybe in our own backyard here in Texas, it's more of a friendly social club. We're just a bunch of guys who know some clever things. We're just here to have a good time. Let's hold, hold our hands and let's clap and say that everything is good. That was great. That was great. And you know what? I'm all for encouragement. I'm all in for, hey, everyone, give it your best shot. But I'll tell you, what makes Spanish magicians a little bit different, they separate them from, from the pack, is their high bar that they try to shoot. I mean, they definitely go for the best. And also, it's their, uh, it's their performance style. They're not doing the magic the magic is just happening, and they're just as blown away as everyone else is. So it's not, was that your card? Fantastic. Worship me. It's, I can't believe that happened. Or, like, you thought of a card, you thought of a number, and your thought of card, was that that thought of number? I don't know what happens. It just happens. And so it's so much more welcoming and engaging and uh, more of a you know, camaraderie as far as performance style. So what's next for you? Like, if we're talking to you in ten years, oh my goodness, what 
where do you hope to be in 10 years? Do you, do you hope to, you know, get a, a Vegas show? Do you hope to have some role on television? Man. I mean, you, you're, you're a decent looking guy. I could see you on, <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, I could see I you on like you, buddy. CBS on like a primetime show. I don't know. <laughs> Man, I don't know. I'll tell you, um, so much of my yeah, work is a lot of corporate performances. And I really enjoy that because every setting is different. Every group is different. So traveling around the country and helping companies spice up their meetings or uh, client appreciation events or award ceremonies, I, I really find that to be a lot of fun. But I will continue to keep my roots here in Houston. I think that's a great market to be in. Frankly, people always say, oh, Ben, you're a magician. <clears throat> you should go to Vegas. You should go to Los Angeles. And I say, no, 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 no. There's already an abundance of magicians out there. And I feel like with Houston, hey, it's the fourth largest city in the United States. We've got some major Fortune 500 companies right in my own backyard. This allows me to make magic, like I said, a viable vocation, and I can sleep in my own bed at night. Right. And, uh, and then also, one of the big drivers is to keep on doing the show at the hotel because people ask me all the time, hey, where can we see magic? Where can I buy a ticket and see a magic show? And really, the only reoccurring performance of magic is is the show at, at the hotel right now. And you know, I want all magicians to be successful, and I want them. I want the general public to have an access to see magic. And I feel like the more people see quality magic, the higher the uh, perception and perceived value that magic will have. So, I, I think for the time being, I'll continue to stay in Houston and make that my home base. But Continue to travel out, and if TV opportunities come my way, I'll take them. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Uh, yeah, you know. Get you on America's Got Talent. I yeah, think. I, I guess I so. I think you Maybe. could do well with uh, some sleight of hand. And, you know, Ben, I wish this was like a video podcast because Ben spent, what, like five minutes just blowing our minds? I was going to say, I, was yeah. like, I, I, I mean, I, I get to see a little bit of magic in my, my day job, which is kind of an interesting story in and of itself. But, I mean, I, I was completely, I mean, this is like next level. So I was completely blown away. I, I, was, I was to the side of him intently studying his hand movements because I kind of can see what, what some of my kids do when they're doing it. But the, I, I was completely blown away. Yeah, that, that's why he was, you know an extra on a, on a movie set. You I know, know stunt, right? A stunt double, <laughs> if you will. I was going to say, so, so you, have, you have consulted for, for films before. Uh, just, just the one. The one. Just the one. Sin City. Just Sin City. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that, that's incredible. What, I mean, like, how do you, how does that even work? Did they just call you up and just ask you to be on it? Or? Well, essentially, um, I got wind from a friend that uh, the director, Robert Rodriguez, uh, was looking for a sleight of hand performer because they were filming the movie Sin City in Austin, Texas. And so my friend Chris Hulse said, Hey, uh, I got, I heard that they're looking for a performer. You need to email so and so. You need to send them some video footage of you doing your work. And so I did. And literally three hours later, I got a phone call. And they said, Hey, wow, we like hours. what you, we like what you do a lot. Can you come here? tomorrow. And so I said, yeah. So I got in the car. I drove up to Austin. I was in a boardroom with Robert Rodriguez. He says, okay, show me your stuff. Do it. And then I demonstrated you know, what he was looking for as far as techni- technique and sleight of hand and like, you know, some real gambling card sharpening moves that would be applicable to the film. He said, yeah, okay, you're a guy. You're hired. And he hired me on the spot. And then we walked out uh, from that boardroom, I walked right onto the set because it's a big green. I mean, everything was filmed on a, a green screen. And he said, "Okay, this is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. This is the this is the guy that you'll <laughs> be your incredible. hand double, and you'll be his private coach for the rest of the film." Okay, cool. 
great. And that was it. So my job was to make him look good, to give him some of the basic techniques of how to handle cards, and then for some of the more uh, demanding stuff, like shuffling a deck with one hand or springing the cards or doing more flourishy moves, I would put on his wardrobe, his duplicate costume, and just be, you know, insert the hand double. So he would, like, you know, freeze his position, get up, and I would then sit down on the chair and do the move. And, but that was, that was my experience with it. That's, so. that's insane. And, and he's a pretty well-known guy. I mean, yeah. what, what was he like in and, and, and person just working with him? And how long did you work with him? Um, I would work with him on set whenever he had a free moment, which was rare. And so I found the best way to approach it was, I, and I addressed it pretty early. I said, hey, I walked up to him and said, hey, man, I know that you have, you're being pulled in a million different directions, but I'm here to help you. So whenever you have time and you want to sit down and work with me, just come get me. I'm kind of like the magi on call. <laughs> and so, you know, we would hang out and I would show him and adjust his grip and his technique and say, look, you got to hold the cards like this. And when you're doing a second deal, you got to hold the cards like so. You got to modify your grip a little bit. And, uh, you know, just enough that he would feel comfortable so that he wouldn't be awkwardly holding the, ca- holding the cards that would not be the way a real card sharp would hold cards, you know. Uh, even and I showed him like how to roll a coin down your knuckles because, you know, in the movie, he does that with poker chips and stuff. So... Just, just things that would add credibility to him as his character. Yeah, that, I yeah. think that's amazing. I really do. I think that's cool. I mean, to be able to have that experience. It was fun. Yeah, it it's, was fun. it's something that not many people could say. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember him from, like, what was it, the uh, Angels in the Outfield? Oh, yeah. You guys remember oh, that? Yeah, that's 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 vintage. The sun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, else? he's uh, been around for a while. He was recently in what uh, Dark Knight Rises as yeah. like yeah. Yeah. pseudo yeah. Robin or whatever. You know? Right? Uh, yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it was sort Kinda of like uh, the... ambiguous at the end. Right. Right. <laughs> I know. I, it, it's it's so funny I, when I think of of the careers of of actors. You know, they'll they'll go from like starting. He was like Cobra in the GI Joe film oh. to like Inception to yes, yes, Inception, you know to sure. being yeah to uh, uh to Robin and Batman which are yeah. Dark Knight Rises, whatever it was. Right. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, you know, uh, I highly recommend, you know, Jeremy hasn't seen your show. I highly recommend it. I saw it about a month, two months ago, something like, I honestly, it's just been a blur the last few months. I mean, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like 2018 has gone by so quickly. I mean, we're almost to May, which is, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, but I highly recommend it. If you, if you live in Houston, um, go check it out. Friday night, Saturday night. Uh, you can check out, the exact show times, benjacksonmagic.com. Um, shows are great. It, it's a very small, intimate crowd. Uh, you involve pretty much everyone mm-hmm. that gets there. So, you know, you're going to see close up magic. You're going to be on stage. It's just, I, I, I love it. I think it's great. Highly recommend it. We're actually going to give uh, two tickets away to your show on Friday, uh, May 25th. So, if you want to uh, go see Ben, hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at Weekly Brewcast. Uh, I think you would enjoy it. So Ben, uh, for people that want to come see your show, like what can they expect? Yeah. How do they, how do they get there? You know, what type of attire should they wear? What, what's the atmosphere like? So the atmosphere, man, we really love the venue that we're doing the show and it's La Colomdor Hotel. Now, La Colomdor Hotel wasn't always a hotel. It was built in 1923. It was the private home for the Fondren family, and it is a now a French boutique little mansion that boasts five suites, super intimate. Uh, there is art literally over all the walls, a phenomenal bar downstairs, just 
great crown molding and, 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 and wood throughout. And it's such a charming, charming little place with phenomenal ambiance. And so what happens is that guests arrive. Cocktail tire is the dress code. It's an evening for adults. Um, we usually say that the age limit is 12 years and up, and seldom do we have uh, younger people who come see the show. But I, I will say, though, that you know some of your humor you know, does have some innuendos a little bit, or at least it seemed like it. Maybe, oh, man. maybe it was just my mind. I don't well, know. Then that must have been a <laughs> slip on my part, because, yeah, we always but say... Not, not, not like bad, but you know, just more like adult humor. I don't mean like you know, sexual innuendos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah, that, yeah. Maybe I should say that. But <laughs> I, I feel like you know, even if it was you know, a 12, 14-year-old, like, you know, parents would 100% feel comfortable, and they would enjoy it. So, yeah. yeah. There's no blue material, no suggestive jokes, no, no yeah, any blatant and then you windows anything like that. We do Maybe keep I the just show. need to get my mind checked. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we Jeez. do keep the show completely clean from beginning to end. But uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a show for adults. So people can walk in, they have a cocktail in hand, usually a lot of couples, a lot of date night. Um, and we've had people come again and again. I mean, it's it's surprising the amount of people who will come back again. And yes, the material does change. Uh, it takes a while to put in a new piece, but even though maybe they come back and it hasn't changed, they're like, we just want to see you. We want to see my friends experience it. And, and, and so that's always very humbling and very flattering. The show takes place on the third floor of the hotel. It's this cozy little art gallery, and that is also a theme in the show. We talk about the Mona Lisa. Right. We talk about the theft of the Mona Lisa. We talk about uh, is magic art. And I also play the piano in the show. So that's uh, that's another uh, parallel that we talk about is what's the difference between a magician and a musician, um, and the name of the show is Magic Music and Mayhem because we we go a mile a minute. It's a ninety minute show, action packed, nonstop, and we incorporate a lot of different uh, fun things. But the main star of the show is the audience because it's the it's the decisions they make, it's the thoughts that they have. And that keeps every show fresh for me. And you can try to throw him off. It doesn't work. Like, I, I, I tried that. He pulled me on stage, and I tried to throw him off and multiple times. I think it was like three or four times he asked me to, like, hide a coin between one of my hands. And he had to choose which one it was, which hand the coin was in. I thought I was outsmarting him. And, um, yeah, I was wrong. But, uh, ben, we definitely appreciate you uh, stopping by uh, this studio this week. And... Uh, for anyone that kind of wants to learn more about you, more about you know your corporate gigs, the shows yeah. in, in Montrose, what is the best way for them to connect with you or find out more about what you do? Man, the best place is the one-stop shop, benjacksonmagic.com. That has my bio. It has some uh, videos of my work for like corporate promotional stuff, my trade show magic, my keynote speaking, um, also tickets and information to the hotel, my direct contact information. So if I could be of service to anyone who's listening or they want to come see the show, that's the place to do it. Ben, appreciate it, man. That was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah, for having me, guys. That's been great. I, I, I wish uh, I, I wish we had a camera here so we could, you know, make Jigamin doing magic during the interview. Absolutely. People out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is the real mind freak. Absolutely. So I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ben Jackson, again, you can follow him or just connect with him at benjacksonmagic.com. Uh, but again, we're going to be giving away uh, two tickets to his show on uh, Friday, May 25th. So uh, if, you, if you're interested in that, follow us at Weekly Brewcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we'll have more information there uh, this week. But Ben, appreciate it. Thank you, guys. 
Closing time. Thank you so much to Ben Jackson for stopping by the Weekly Brew Studios for episode 130. Uh, Jeremy, that was one of the most unique segments that I think we've ever had on the podcast. I mean, the only other one that I can think about was maybe when we had Chris Grismer, who did voiceovers for us, uh, and, you know, talking about his work. But, uh, man, I thought Ben, he blew me away. And like you mentioned in the intro, I really wish that we had video. Um, and, and we do have a video that we're, we're going to post on the on our Instagram channel, Weekly Brewcast, of him doing a, a, a illusion, a card trick. But he spent a good hour, if not right. almost, almost we, giving us like a private show. Yeah, we had a we had a private magic show for about for about an hour. It was amazing. Um, what, what I what I think is is most interesting about him is that, you know, it's not it's not something. You, you, I don't know if you've seen magicians in the past. Have you been to magic shows? Yeah, uh, Penn and Teller. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and there's almost like there's almost like a cheesiness to some to some uh, magic shows and things like that, that that sort of turn people off. But but Ben was so down to earth and so awesome and so professional in the way that he presented this stuff and really. Um, gets into his audience and can really read his audience very well. And I, I thought he read me. I was going to say. Well. I mean, he was he was sitting here looking at your little tells, you know, trying to figure out. Um, he 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 guessed something that I was thinking about. I mean, he he said, you know, like think of an animal, and like two or three minutes later, he had guessed the animal without me giving him much of anything. So it's really incredible stuff. Yeah, I, I I was simply blown away. I mean. That, I've liked magic since I was a little kid. Um, you know, it was something that my grandfather, great grandfather taught me. Uh, but, you know, Ben just takes it to a completely, you know, different level. But, you know, if you want to follow him, benjacksonmagic.com, uh, go see his show. Highly recommend that you go see his show. It's magic, music, and mayhem. And it's just here at the, uh, what is it, the La Colombe? I, I can't pronounce it. But it, it's at a great hotel uh, in Montrose. Uh, and, you know, he's got a, a few shows coming up April 27th, this Friday. Uh, he's got two shows at 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock. And then, again, we're going to be giving away two tickets to his show on May 25th uh, here in Houston. So we really hope that you uh, in, enjoyed that segment. It's a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Um, but, you know, that's what we do here. We talk sports, politics, pop culture. I think he he's going places. Oh, absolutely. No, without a doubt. And, of course, you'll <clears throat> as you heard in the interview, He's done a lot already. You know, he's done so much. You know, USA Today uh, being the hand double for for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, I know that's crazy. I know it's crazy. So, I mean, the guy's right here in Houston. You can see his show. Um, and I, again, I'm not going to butcher the name of that hotel, but it's it's fantastic. He said it much better than we did. Yeah, I always say he's. Uh, he's I think it's like a French name, and I don't speak French. I I used to. Yeah. And it's really sad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, very, we, I'm a very we, lazy. I'm a very lazy we. French speaker. But anyways, I hope that you enjoyed uh, this week's episode. And, and if you want to continue to follow our work, just do so on Weekly Brewcast. Uh, search that on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, and you know, pretty much any social media platform. We're on there. Also, you can go to our website, weeklybrewcast.com. Click subscribe. And you'll get all the push notifications uh, on, on your devices as we post each episode. And also, uh, thanks to Ben for stopping by. Uh, on Sunday and, and really treating us to a great conversation. And again, follow him at binjacksonmagic.com. But uh, Jeremy, it's been another good week on the podcast, the Weekly Brew Podcast. This has been episode 130 of the podcast. And on behalf of my co host, co founder, Jeremy Paxton, my name's Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Weekly Brew. 